Hey, welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, man, Ian Cooper is here. We're here at NDC. It's also the 10th year, and we've pretty much been to all of them. Yeah, well, except for the first one. I, you've been to all of them. I went to the very first one, yeah. I went to the second one. Right. Yeah. And, and we've been, uh, well, been a part of it ever since, right? Yep. So. And it's, you know, we're here in Oslo at the Oslo Spectrum. It's very cool. If you haven't heard our other shows from NDC, they put us in a fishbowl. Yep. It's a little box with windows and it's a couple of chairs and a center of an arena sessions going on all around us right people pushing sausages down our throats and uh, <laughs> and ice cream serving and us all those other things you're not supposed to eat yeah serving us coffee and everything yeah all right well enough about that let's roll the music for better know a framework awesome all right dude what do you got well, I found some application architecture guidance from Microsoft. Oh, really? For various .NET approaches. Hmm. And so this is uh, Microsoft.com slash net slash learn slash architecture. Oh, that's pretty straight up. .NET application architecture guidance. So there are four different silos that these are in. One is microservices and Docker containers. Uh, another one is web applications with ASP.NET, then uh, deploying to the cloud with Azure, and mobile applications with Xamarin. And so for each of them, there are ebooks and sample apps and patterns that you can download. Uh, for the microservices and Docker containers, there's both an architecture ebook and a DevOps ebook. Nice. And, uh, and a sample app and patterns, and it looks good. Um, and it, the quality of the documentation at Microsoft has gone up significantly. Way, way up, yeah. And we have friends who've been working on this stuff. Yeah, you know, that's right. Bill Wagner and yep. uh, Dan Fernandez apparently driving a whole bunch of it mm. as well. So mm -hmm. uh, it's just they've taken, they started taking docs really seriously. Yep, and it's good to see. Awesome. So that's what I got. Who's talking to us, my brother? Grabbed a comment off of show 1071. That's right. I'm going back in the archive a little bit. This was <laughs> December of 2014, when we back when NDC London was actually in December, not in January. Yeah. When we were talking to Ian about hexagonal architectures. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, ton of great comments on that show. It's a while. You know, I've noticed, Ian, happily to just sort of get you involved in the conversation right off the bat, that... Uh, Every time we talk to you, you're thinking about the next thing. Like yep. you, the hexagonal architectures, service discovery, like you, it's mm. not like you do the same thing every time. And I really appreciate that about uh, our conversations. Yeah, me too. Cool. It's very wide ranging. This comment comes from Rostick Slipetsky, and hopefully I pronounced that correctly. He says, and again, talk about hexagonal architectures. This episode reminded me of Uncle Bob's talk on clean architecture, mm. where he claimed that from looking at directories from within your solution, it should not be obvious that you were creating a .NET application, but that you were just accounted for the web being a delivery mechanism to reach your application. He's actually talking about ASP.NET. What is unclear to me at this point is how to deal with the classes that represent the data model. If you want your data model to be clean of external dependencies, you make them POCO. But you may need to store them in Azure storage, so you need to make them a table entity. Hmm. Then if you provide a web API to do CRUD on this data, you may need to mark certain properties with the attributes to perform validation. And sometimes you may want to follow different properties to be set during creation and subsequent modifications. I have once inherited a project where there were three classes named, let's say, my thing, <laughs> just like the do stuff. A dollar sign. In different namespaces to denote web API request entity, response entity, and then Azure table entity. And then there was a base class or two for those three in separate namespaces. Yeah. It would be nice to hear from someone on how they manage the data model classes in projects with such a clean architecture. Absolutely mm. a challenging thing to get right there, Rustic. And, uh, 
I mean, that was two years ago. We have had a bunch of these conversations sure since have, yeah. about data abstractions and so forth. So hopefully that's, that's been addressed. But uh, I appreciate your thinking that it's just a challenge. You know, when you're pursuing these clean architectures or trying to keep code that's as, as agnostic as possible, that at some point you have to point to attack. Right. You know, something mm -hmm. that actually matters. And yep. the way you call the data via web API is very different from the way you'd call to it in Azure. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the things I tend to do, and I don't know whether we've drifted hexagonal architectures a bit from the original intent, but yep. hexagonal architectures have obviously the adapter and the domain. And the port is kind of what talks between adapter and domain. Or mm. so an adapter could be the test, it could be something like that. And we tend to treat that quite often as some kind of facade, right? Right. Uh, yeah, right. And which basically abstracts the domain. But what we've done over time is actually have some code there. We usually use a model of a command and a handler. Mm -hmm. And in the handler, you talk to the domain, but you also talk to other ports, outbound ports towards the database and that kind of thing. So all that code that's kind of in that boundary that has to, wants to talk to the domain, but also wants to say, create a session with the database, mm -hmm. goes in that handler and the port layer, yeah. which enables us to have this kind of, if you like, demilitarized zone between essentially the adapters and the domain where they can kind of talk to each other quite neatly. Mm -hmm. um, and you're encapsulating that, that dependency then, so if you did need to switch data storage, you're really only looking one place. Right, yeah, so yeah, they're, still, they're still ports, they're, out, they're outgoing ports, yeah. but effectively we let the, uh, the two ports kind of talk to each other and involve the domain in the whole process. Okay. And that really helps uh, uh, quite a lot, I think. Yeah, it's very, very fair. smart. Yeah. Hey, so Rostic, thank you so much for your comment at .NET Rocks mug. It's on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We clean our architecture with him. <laughs> <laughs> Little squeaky rags. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's uh, officially bring Ian Cooper onto the show. He's got over 20 years of experience delivering Microsoft platform solutions in government, healthcare, and finance. During that time, he worked for the DTI. What's DTI? Department of Trade and Industry. There you uh -huh. go. Uh, also, Reuters, SunGuard, Mysis, Beasley and Huddle delivering everything from bespoke enterprise solutions, shrink-wrapped products, and cloud services to thousands of customers. Ian is a passionate exponent of software craftsmanship and agile architecture. When he's not writing code, he's also the founder of the London.net user group and speaks at events throughout the UK. And welcome back. Officially. I've shipped disks in my time. Yeah, Goodness me too, gracious. man. Yeah, and then realized back. they were wrong and needed to ship them again. Yeah, when I was a junior dev, that's one uh, of the first moments where you think, are they going to fire me? When oh, you realize yeah, they're no. going to ship 5,000 more disks or something. That's yeah. it. Silly error you made here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sneaker net. Yeah. Oh, that pain, that pain. Got to ship it again. Yeah. <laughs> Being able to do it by the web is definitely is a, a hallmark huge of, advantage. This is a hallmark of our show, right? That we talk about all, how the, all the pain that we've had <laughs> throughout all the years that most people coming into software in the last five years have no idea what it's all about. Yeah. We just feel like grumpy old men. Yeah, to some degree. Yeah. Uh, and again, I'm, I hope I'm encouraging to you that, that you always are thinking a little forward here. It's why I'm mm. really happy to check in with you once a year. Because I mm. read your piece on Medium about the need for a C-sharp renaissance. Mm -hmm. And although I'm really thinking of it as a .NET renaissance. Mm -hmm. right? And, uh, and well, can you set the context for us? I mean, I'll, I'll include a link to the Medium article, sure, which yeah, I, yeah. everyone should read. But the corollary to the Java renaissance, I thought, was wildly important. 
Yeah, so um, back in about 2011, Bob Lee spoke about, I think, OSCON Java, and he called for a Java renaissance. And Bob's context was, he was working at Square at the time, I think he was the CTO. And uh, Java had been losing mind share, is the best way to describe it, to Rails. Everything was being written on yes, Rails. Yep. You know, there was that era, right? Twitter sure. was in Rails. Sure. And, uh, you know, Bob had been working quite happily with Rails. And then they began to, people began to realize, I think, that there was some limitations to Rails. Rails had let them get, them get to market very fast, mm. but, you know, scaling was kind of hard, right? And remember, we all remember the Twitter file. Oh, well. yes. Uh, oh, yes. And Java at that point began to make a bit of a comeback. Uh, and Bob's point was that it was very timely because at about 2011, uh, there were a number of uh, innovations. The, what the world of Java Enterprise Edition that had put everyone off with its enterprise Java beans, et cetera, was being replaced with you know things like Spring, with people using Java SE, yeah. and sure. things like Netty. And right. these lighter weight uh, libraries. They were all running on the JVM. Right, yeah. But there were, were different ways to express what you wanted to do. I, I felt like Java itself had gotten into like the Corba corner. Yeah. Where it was just a little too formal, yeah. a little too many constructs. Like everything is a ceremony. Yeah. And uh, .NET's always been dancing with that as well. Right. Well, I, did, I th didn't I they just get generics like in 2009 or 2010? Yeah, I can't remember. Java 8 got a whole loads of catch up, didn't it, with what was in C Sharp. Yeah. 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 Um, but cool stuff like Clojure and, and Groovy, like there were neat things that came in that mm. time span where folks sort of looked back and said, you know, nothing wrong with the JVM. I'm just a little tired of the ceremony around this and stuff. The JVM it's a way. really good runtime and very I don't fast. Disagree, yeah. And uh, yeah. you know, we need to not this space. We, you know, we've made a lot of improvements recently in the performance of the runtime, and that needs to kind of continue to mm -hmm. compete with that. But um, yeah, there was just this kind of big architecture feel to it, which meant that when people were starting out a new project, there was a lot of ceremony for. Yeah just getting the first version out to the customer, given that the customer feedback might be, this is rubbish, and you right. want to basically change it dramatically. And, and that was something Rails was brilliant at. Right. It's like you yeah. could literally be typing as the customer was describing what they wanted and throw a scaffold up oh, of right. something. It's like, yeah, like that, and well, yeah. get also, to that next step. Also, now there's more choices, right? You don't just simply get C-sharp and start hacking away. I mean, you have right. choices about which .NET stack you want to develop, develop to, and we're in the middle of expressing an entirely new stack with right. .NET Core. And so, yeah, it's, so, you're right. Yeah, my discussion a little bit on, on the Medium post, and today I was here at NDC, was that um, there's definitely, you know, some people you, I, I've spoke, spoken to, and that's anecdotal evidence to begin with, at various conferences were saying, oh, I'm finding it harder to find the interesting .NET jobs, right? Yeah. And a few people were saying, oh, I've moved on to this or that platform because there's more interesting work. Right. And I, and I was wanted to say, well, is this just anecdotal from a particular peer group that I have, or is there some genuine truth to this? So sure. I went away and did quite a bit of digging on, I mean, in the US, you've got Indeed, I think on IT Jobs Watch in the UK, there's obviously the Stack Overflow produces a lot of information about sure. what developers are using. Yeah, and the, you can look at the trends and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah, and overall, the, the picture would seem to be that since about 2012, we have been losing, particularly on ASP.NET on the back end, mm -hmm. some mind share. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, while desktop is pretty firmly safe because Windows dominates and .NET dominates, right. on the server, there's obviously considerable competition. Sure. And... Uh, if you look at the numbers, the really big winner in that time frame seems to be Node.js. Node.js right. came along. And, and, and JavaScript as a whole, really. Right, and I think yeah. there are a couple of reasons for that. I think one is, obviously, it was very high throughput because of its use of the libvengine. 
The other was that actually it's quite straightforward if I'm just writing my, as, as we began to move towards writing more code in the front end, mm. you know, post the Ajax era, the growth of the spa, mm -hmm. it became, you're doing a lot more JavaScript and it became quite easy then to just hop onto Node and actually essentially just grab the data I needed and pull it down, right? right? Yeah. Uh, and so, Simple. Yeah, yeah, very, very easy. And a lot of people just would, were, were doing sites where the rule they really wanted on the server was just to go and grab the data. Right. Um, and so yeah. you can see these kind of two graphs that compare with node climbing and uh, C-sharp falling a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but my thing, and I think there are a number of other reasons that are out there we all talk about occasionally. One is, you know, the, the move away from uh, on-premise installs in small and medium-sized businesses towards right. software as a service, which has moved a lot of the provision out of um, companies into infrastructure as a service, colos, that kind of thing. Yep. And whereas for a small and medium-sized business, really, I want my guy running the servers to also are on my desktops, look after my exchange, et yep. cetera. On Windows, it's great for that, right? I'm learning one technology. Sure. When you start to move into infrastructure as a service and you're talking about automation, particularly at scale, today, you know, uh, Linux still has significant advantages. Sure. And, you know, complete credit to the guys in Windows, they are... Um, trying to catch up, but mm -hmm. obviously they're, they're coming from behind a bit. Um, so lacking, lacking Linux support was meant that some people, when they're thinking about building something new, look at that and go, well, I'm a bit behind. I don't necessarily have container support in the same way from new ideas like Docker. Right. Um, and the open source ecosystem we had was uh, not as good as in other environments. Sure. And some of that was we were very lucky, right? We had Microsoft pumping out a lot of good stuff. Mm -hmm. But... There's only so much investment Microsoft's going to give, and the danger is it's 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 not basically um, producing a wide enough ecosystem. Right. And my point is similar to Bob's. I think we're actually on the cusp of a point where we can get a revolution here because .NET Core is going to enable us to run on Linux, which means we can park that concern that .NET doesn't run on Linux. And actually, sometimes. I don't know there's anything more than a, we can tick the box, we can run on Linux. Now we may actually deploy to Windows, but it didn't, this is not a blocker to us sure, actually yeah. moving forward with that particular project. Right. And Microsoft moving into OSS, I think is very positive because mm -hmm. it's encouraging the, the community to engage with OSS, to be um, happier about picking up OSS platforms. And they themselves. really had no choice, Adam. I mean, right. it, it works out really well for them. I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and essentially, it means, you know, we get a richer ecosystem and the more contributors. Now, of course, right. there's always the danger that, you know, uh, while many other communities would give their left arm for having a big player in the industry uh, funding the development of open source projects and right. paying for developers to work on them full time. Right. Sure. The danger, of course, is that, you know, Microsoft drowns everybody else out. Right. Um, but, I, you know, with things like the .NET Foundation, et cetera, and, you know, and John Galloway moving there, I know Microsoft yeah. is, is keen to try and ensure that doesn't happen going forward. We know it's happened in the past. I think we need to part the past and kind of like assume the best intent from people like John to try and address those issues going forward. Agreed. Well, and, and I think it, the important part is stay engaged to make it come true, right, too. Right, yeah. Because they are listening. 
You know, the, yeah. I, I look at how well engaged the ASP.NET team, for example, is where they're literally putting on YouTube their conversations and, you know, working on the through the issue list from GitHub right. that everyone's yeah. contributing to. Like, yep. you put in a, a significant issue related to that product, you're going to see the team talk about it and decide yeah. how they're going to deal with it. And actually, there have been times when, say, the ASP.NET team had talked about doing something and people are a bit like, well, that conflicts with a lot of existing projects. Right. And they've got strong feedback via that mechanism. Yeah. So I think the communication channels are much uh, simpler for them to get very direct feedback on what they're doing before we get problems in the same way we have. When I get a sense we got a visibility all the way down, right. down the line, like I just don't yeah. expect the ASP.NET team to ship anything we don't know is coming. Right, exactly. It's, yeah. There's just no surprise left. Which is, yeah. I mean, it's, it's so much for Christmas, well, you know. Right. But at the same time, I, I really don't feel like being surprised by my framework anymore. Yeah. I don't have to do. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, no surprise is a good thing. So, yeah. And so the other thing, that, apart from kind of the movement to .NET Core, I think, I know it's just conquering a couple of those difficulties, is I think the um, uh, there's another facets are that... Um, I think that you get inflection points or paradigm shifts almost in the industry. So like when we moved to Windows, basically, we changed. Visual Basic came along because we wanted to build GUIs easily. Sure. When we moved to the kind of web, we got you know tooling around making it easy for people to build websites. Right. right. When we moved to mobile, then that's the next thing that fell. Mm -hmm. And then there's basically you know big data. But I think the next one is what we call cloud native. And cloud native is really a collection of uh, technology directions. But it's mainly around this idea that in the future we were building apps to run probably in heavily containerized or even serverless environments. Serverless? In the cloud. Yeah. 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 And that uh, the big sort of topics people talk about there are microservices, which I'm sure you guys have talked about a lot. No, I've never heard of them. Things like <laughs> API First, which is now I'm serving mobile and Spa applications. Mm -hmm. Really, yep. what I need to think about is I'm building an API yeah. on the back end people sure. should talk to. 12-factor apps, which I've, I talk, I've done a few talks up. You can look mm -hmm. around for the and links to those. To us about we it. talked have, about yeah, it last time. Right, yeah. Exactly, which are a way of essentially making sure we run well in containers. And then there's a couple of more platforming ops things. So basically this, what they call agile application infrastructure, which is really, I just say, you know, devs got bored basically in the DevOps environment uh, with all the grunt work and decided <laughs> to automate the hell out of everything. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and anti-fragility, which is kind of chaos engineering Netflix style. Right, and those, yeah. those are seen as the key trends in cloud. I, I'm sorry. I'm not going to let go of the term chaos engineering. That <laughs> kind of makes me happy. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, just yeah. that your system stays resilient through right. any amount of chaos. This idea essentially that we, when they, they, someone tells you that, no, no, we're going to actually take down your code uh, effectively while it's in the production environment. Right. So you have to write to be prepared for it. It's yeah. not an yeah. accident that might never happen. It's and no. having tools it's like to Poly, for example, are a great way to right. protect exactly. yourself against those exactly. things. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of part of the point. Poly's a really good lead-in because I think we do have with... .NET Core is, you know, well-built for running in containerized environments. Mm -hmm. We yeah. have this kind of useful model around the CLI are built around it now and the uh, ability to basically make sure so we have all our dependencies and pull them in and do a separate kind of build and publish process to mm -hmm. get into the containers. Mm -hmm. And we do yeah. have in .NET Core a lot of the building blocks we need for creating decent microservices. So things like Poly, things like, you know, Web API or Nancy. We've, we've got things like Entity Framework or Dapper on the back end or yeah. Substack Redis. You've got basically Service Stack as an alternative whole thing. Event buses, we've got Bright, which I work on, and the service bus, Mass Trans. We've got a lot of the right kit. Right. 
most of it's quite most of it's quite because of our history I think a little bit actually fits very well with microservices because mm. the .NET communities tended to build a lot of quite lightweight not these kind of old like we're talking about EJB big beast things right. Right? but actually quite yeah. lightweight things which suit microservices very well and uh, so I think um, you know targeting uh, that kind of microservices environment is very positive for .NET because um, it has great stuff around performance. It does mm -hmm. parallelism very well. If you live in a world of, say, Python or Ruby or mm. Node.js, you can do concurrency, right? You can mm -hmm. use something like the libav uh, effectively to essentially mean that when you're doing I.O., you yield control back. But you can't do true parallelism. You can't run multiple cores at the same time. That do multiple processes. But Dunton has great libraries for doing that like TPL. As yeah, well as yeah. great support for various you can wait for basically the I.O. bound stuff. Yeah, it's um, a very mature platform. Yeah, and it's fast now. I mean, a lot of the work the guy's been doing on performance yep. um, recently uh, has been paid off dividends. We are much faster now in .NET Core than we are, say, by comparison to Node.js. Yep. Sure. And my other point would be that, you know, dynamic languages are great for those f early first versions, but after a while what happens is they can become a bit, you can, they can be, they're harder to own yes. large code manage. bases. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, that's where stuff like TypeScript comes into play, right? right. You're just trying to hard stabilize JavaScript. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really good point. Essentially, the emergence of things like TypeScript are saying we need more, right? Being able to handle that dynamic problem. Yeah, exactly. Hey, guys, hold on right there while we take a minute to pay the bills. This episode of .NET Rocks is made possible in part by Windows on the Google Cloud Platform. You may not know this, but the Google Cloud Platform supports Windows Server 2008, 2012, and 2016. It also supports SQL Server versions 2012, 2014, and 2016 standard web and enterprise editions with high availability. You can deploy your ASP.NET Windows apps to Compute Engine or your ASP.NET Core apps to App Engine or Container Engine. That's Google's hosted Kubernetes environment. .NET and .NET Core libraries are there for all 200-plus Google.com and cloud services in NuGet, led by John Skeet of Stack Overflow fame. But what about Visual Studio integration? Oh, it's there. You can use Visual Studio to manage your GCP resources and deploy your existing apps. You get stack driver logging, error reporting, and tracing support for .NET and .NET Core. PowerShell commandlets for GCP, which run on Windows and Linux. And a great set of partners to bring your Windows and .NET workloads to GCP, including Capgemini, Nudesic, and Magenic. So go to gcp.netrocks.com and get your free trial today. And you're listening to .NET Rocks. Ian Cooper is here. We're talking about uh, the .NET renaissance that is taking place right now. And certainly seems that way. I think we're really poised to it with this next version of .NET Core, you know, the, the, the shipping version, and .NET Standard 2. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I, think we, I think we're pretty close. I mean, one of the things I talk about today is this kind of notion of, there's a couple of similar notions, the hype cycle, where right. essentially, you know, new technology comes out, everyone gets very excited about it, tons of press, yeah. hits the top of the hype curve, then you enter the trough of disillusionment where yeah. we try and really use <laughs> the it. trough of <laughs> and disillusionment. And I think we've been kind of through, you know, Project JSON, .NET yeah. Standard Confusion, and this yeah. is all normal, right? I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I get that it's painful, but, 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 but at this phase, everyone go, goes through this step of everyone going, sure. Uh, they try and use it at scale and large numbers of people rather than the original team who wrote it get involved and say, yeah. it doesn't make any sense to me. Right? Yeah. That's perfectly normal. You thrash through this period and then some things fall off and die there. They never get through. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But, right? but then, then what should happen if you succeed is you start to then find 
their main body people basically take you on board. But there's this something called crossing the chasm at the same time, which here, which is that this notion that you're that to, to make that leap into the mainstream, you have to be solving a problem. That, that people actually have. Yeah. So why would someone do drop the .NET framework they're using today and take .NET Core instead, right? Mm. And I think the answer has to be around, well, I can run in multiple environments. It's basically, you've got, it's high performance. Actually, it may, it may simplify the landscape a bit by dropping some of the libraries that essentially are unnecessary in that, in, uh, nowadays because we because they're historic, right? Because they, they really refer to Windows. I yeah. Mean, yeah. One would argue everything that's happened in the past couple of years is about getting Windows out of the center right. of everything that .NET was about. Sure. And in, in some ways, it's like Microsoft's gone back to being a dev company. You know, yeah. The original Microsoft was a dev company first. They built dev tools. Then this operating system thing came along, mm. and it's kind of been dominating for a while until... I mean, more or less, somewhere in like 2011, 2012, operating systems just didn't matter anymore. Right. It's just taken us a few years to realize sure. yeah. operating so systems doesn't matter right. anymore. It's one of the big things. If you're running on a runtime, you, you generally want a life support system for your runtime. Yes. But you don't really care what that is. And no. one of the things that happens to you when you start using things like containers, like Docker, right, is you suddenly realize, actually, all I care about is my, is my Docker file, where yep. I, I say, I want to use Microsoft.net. Um, and most of the time, I don't really know yeah. what operating system that's actually running. I mean, or in care. some cases, don't care. Yeah, yeah. Don't care, yeah. <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> because actually, I just wanted to keep my, my my runtime alive. If my stuff runs, that's fine. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know that there's a group of people out there who's like, I would use .NET if only it ran on Linux. You know, I just don't. I don't mm. see that it's true so much as somebody saying, Hey, I like your app. I need to run it in my place, but I. I run Linux. Can you do mm. that? And you're like, yeah, I can do that. And then off you go. Right, yeah. you know, it's, I think it's a very different mindset that it's just like, that is no longer a barrier to entry. That's not important anymore. We right. can do that for you. Because the future is much more people deploying apps, things like Azure Container Service or um, Amazon's Elastic Container Service exactly. or even serverless, right? And serverless, you actually just kind of like pass on steroids, right? Mm -hmm. I don't really care effectively what's happening under the hood uh, because the container is created briefly, like my code runs yep. and, then and, th and then destroyed. Uh, and so whatever it was down there, yeah. the less I know about it, the better because I, I shouldn't interact with it because any interaction I do is ephemeral anyway. I can't use the file system or anything else. So really it's only the writer of the runtime that really cares yep. that And that's a specialty that. they should do. The same way that yeah. Windows introduced this idea of abstraction from driver. You're going to work against it device context, what actual hardware is responsibility of the hardware vendor? Right. Now we've exactly. really we've literally done that to our execution environment where the responsibility for the operating system is the responsibility of the operating system builder. Right. And I, I just care that it's going to manage memory and file system, et cetera, yep. for me. I don't really want to care about it anything more than it just does that, right? Remember when we were all vaguely uncomfortable that the operating system was going to manage memory for us? You know, <laughs> the JVM <laughs> and CLR. It's like, really? You're going to do garbage collection for me? Yeah. I don't tell you when to? I remember Chris Sells was going to implement uh, reference counting in .NET. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> yeah. Just because. Yeah. Just because it bothered him. I, um, yeah, when I, when, I, you know, when I used to do C++, one of the things that I enjoyed most about the shift to uh, C Sharp was... Mm -hmm. When I realized, you know, the, the, how many lines of code 
uh, in my C++ kind of method were dealing with stuff right. and how many were actually solving the business problem. Yeah. And that ratio went up dramatically when I moved <laughs> to C Sharp. Right, lines of code that have to do with the platform you're talking mm -hmm. to rather than the activity you want to do. Right, so you asked me a question earlier, by the way, I'll just get back to it about, mm -hmm. you know, I talked about C Sharp rather than .NET. What, mm -hmm. what, what, why? Um, really only because, you know, the numbers of people involved are huge. C Sharp basically is, as they say, millions, VB is hundreds of thousands, sure. F Sharp is thousands. And so, really, you know, it's the rising tide lifts all boats thing. When yes. we talk about basically uh, trying to get the .NET uh, framework into the point where uh, it, 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 it's, a, it's seen as a modern a development platform, addressing C-sharp addresses a big audience, right? Yes. Um, and in theory, anything you positively do for the runtime benefits those other languages as well. Um, and of course, you know, they have their own unique selling points, uh, which are strengths and weaknesses for them once you are there. But I think, to me, it feels like, uh, um, in the same way that the JVM is a thing where essentially there's an importance to getting the JVM locations that, upon which you can then choose whatever your poison language is. Sure. We need to focus on getting .NET Core into that point, but initially that's going to be around getting C-sharp developers really en masse to ad adopt .NET Core to think about that kind of renaissance and to really, in my mind as well, to contribute to open source, really. And it feels to me like this upcoming version, the version two, which we actually mm -hmm. know is the third version, which is kind of a rule for Microsoft, yeah. is going to be the lift and shift version. I think so, yeah. yeah. I, think for, I think it solves a lot of problems for, for some existing projects Absolutely. that have lacked some APIs and who were, you know, I think are struggling to find the resources to mm -hmm. uh, uh, re rewrite them under the old, without with those APIs missing. It's always mm -hmm. tough to justify a rewrite. And it, and it yeah. seems to me, most of the folks we've talked to that are using Core, it's a greenfield app. Yep. They're doing a new experiment, they're trying mm -hmm. a new thing, mm -hmm. they need to take advantage of that platform, and that's great. And But you know you've won the market, you've won the opportunity, when somebody can take that existing app, switch frameworks, and maybe a few tweaks, you know, and hopefully there's some kind of guidance for what wasn't going to work. Mm. And suddenly you're cross-platform. And suddenly right. you're running really fast. And maybe yep. faster. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, I, I, it definitely feels like it's a watershed moment um, for getting the adoption uh, right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, but the other thing, you know, it isn't just also technology in terms of on renaissance. I think it's also about uh, reinvigorating the community where mm -hmm. I think, you know, we, this is something new and exciting for us. Um, rather than people being frightened of some of the ideas coming down the pipe and the fact that, you know, there are these things like containers and Linux, et cetera, going on, I think it's great to, people should feel energized. Hey, there's some right. new cool stuff we can begin to deal with. My old skills are still there, yep. but I can acquire new ones. Take them into the new space. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And we'll talk about the culture in just a minute, but uh, first of all, Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time for a renaissance ode to .NET. Ooh. Oh, happy runtime. Oh, happy, happy runtime. Why wouldst thou pluck any other loot? Java, thou never worked. Wow. Wow. That's Thank sonnet. Thank well, you. Nice one's poetry. Yes. yes. No Thank kidding. You. It's actually time for it. And, it, you know, and I would note that it wasn't funny at all. <laughs> it was kind of profound. It was very serious. Yes. yes. Uh, it's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and... Leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best 
without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. And before I tell you who the winner is, I learned about some new product that DevExpress has today. Oh, yeah? It's a web-based responsive grid. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it you know it only updates the cells that you up, want to update. It's built completely from scratch, and hmm. it looks really amazing. That's cool. Yeah. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Nathan Coop. Congratulations, Nathan. <laughs> Golf clap for you, sir. Yes. And Nathan wins the DevExpress D-Experience subscription. A big pile of awesome from them just for being a member of the fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of said fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And uh, Ian, I can't remember what you said last year, but let's ask you again. Uh, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, I think last time we talked about the, uh, the Surface stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. 5,000 pounds is, is the amount of that new uh, Apple um, uh, um, iPhone. The, no, no. The, um, <laughs> the iMac, isn't it? Effectively? Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm wondering a little bit whether anyone apart from someone working in uh, graphics, graphics can yeah, really yeah. justify a £5,000 Apple yeah. workstation nowadays. Well, and we were saying 5000 American dollars, right. so that's right. £4,000. Right. Because yeah. you guys have done a good job tanking your pounds. We had done a good job yeah, of destroying Well done. Hey, yeah. give us time. We'll be right there with <laughs> you. Here, hold my beer. <laughs> hold my beer. <laughs> yes. We shouldn't compete on that score. No, no. no. Please don't. <laughs> no. no. Not good for anybody. Yeah. But, uh, it's, it, we're trying to give Europe a chance, I guess. You I'm know, kind of surprised at the Apple announcements because also they didn't just say, "Oh, when it's ready, you'll yeah. have it next yeah. week." Kind of thing. They, right. It's, a, it's the most forward-looking Apple statements I've seen in a long time. Do you, th uh, do you think it's because they're worried that they're potentially the, some of the Surface announcements are really going to um, uh, challenge them? I think so, and it's uh, you know. <sighs> funny because I've been working on this, this sort of history stuff and looking back on things and so forth and tech companies generally speaking suck when they lead you know yeah and yeah. Apple's yeah. you know Apple had it, everything going on for many years and then they sort of got to be on top and they're lost yeah just yeah. like Microsoft was for years yeah. uh, the Microsoft today where they don't feel like they're in the lead whether they are or not mm. so much relevant it's like is the culture chasing trying to fight yeah. for the next thing do you think it's because it becomes very hard for the people who are arguing for change, like looking down the pipe to the next thing to be heard in a company where the money keeps rolling in. Sure. Why would we change Well, that's anything? innovator's dilemma, right? Yeah. The bottom line is this product is winning. Why would you disrupt that product yourself? Mm. Right? And it, of course, the silly part is Microsoft's always been their primary competition. Why mm. would I buy your new version when your old version mm. works just fine? Uh, I'm very thankful to Apple to start saying we're going to do AR mixed reality stuff because I, I think it'll get Microsoft off the dime. They've been waffling on the HoloLens now for mm. several years thinking, well, we're all by ourselves here. You know, we can take our time, get it exactly right and never bloody ship. Yep. Mm. And suddenly it's like, hey, guess who's coming? The company that knows how to do consumer just the way you don't. <laughs> so you better get off the dime and yeah. move. Yeah. Uh, interesting though, isn't it as well? I mean, the, the competition is good and it, it makes things thrive. But yeah. we, do seem, we do seem to have this tendency within the industry to end up with some kind of monopolies emerging because people think 
Well, if we're all using the same thing, that makes life easy. But I tend to agree. And, and, the, and that making heterogeneity work is mm. harder. Homogeneity is easier. Yeah, right. I, and I don't, I don't know that it's true because ultimately it hurts competition. My favorite piece of competition in recent years was the duel of Chrome and IE. Yeah. Right? Mm. The V8 and the Chakra mm. engine going bad. I mean, that's you talk about where Node came from. Yeah. It mm. was that huge advancement in, in the JavaScript mm. compilers. And it was the duel between them that really made them as good as they are. That's right, mm. yeah. I, I want more of that. I think we all, all right. benefit when that happens. Yeah, sure as long as it doesn't involve um, uh, standards basically divergence to right. the point where effectively it makes life difficult to yeah. Well, and that was, br was, was brilliant was they were working from the right. same standard. In fact, yeah. it was yeah. a standard that they agreed upon yeah. and then raced each other to a better implementation. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And both sides, I think, benefit from that kind of, that, that kind of fair competition. I totally agree. Yeah. And that's the thing is I'd compete on tech don't compete with politics. Right. You know, don't compete with dirt. Well, yeah. that's what compete Microsoft is doing now with .NET Core. I mean, it's pure tech. Right. Mm -hmm. exactly. pure tech. And in some ways, I feel like getting back to the roots of how do you serve developer productivity in a very broad way. Right, and as you're saying, you know, that, you know it, is a, it is them coming through the innovator's dilemma of saying, hey, well, you know, why would you change a .NET framework? Right? Yeah, right. Why would you make people's lives more difficult? Why wouldn't you just leave everything alone? Yeah. Sure. Because they can see down the pipe. Yeah. They have to move or else they risk not being able to be to ride the kind of cloud native wave. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, even you go back, as soon as they were not releasing Office for the iPad, like you're off path now, Yeah. right? Go where your customers are. Mm. Yeah. Don't make them buy a, a different product. It, why, why hurt one product to support another? Like it's yeah, just right. a bad path. Yeah, you exactly. know? And I honestly think like Windows is in a great position now. Now that you're not at the center of the company now, now that you don't have an innovator's dilemma either, mm. go make a better product. And then give it away, please. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Thanks. Okay, thanks. Oh, bye. Right, right, yeah. Although I, did, I, I heard a story, and it's probably completely untrue, that they they had talked about the idea of saying we could open source Windows, but their problem was essentially, but well, how would you do that? I mean, Windows currently builds on, you know, banks of dedicated exactly. machines. That kind of, how would you actually produce a version that realistically someone who was another tech company could actually you know, Nobody, spin yeah. up a version and build it. And that's also true it. of SQL Server. That's true of Office. Yeah. Like any product that's got that long of legs, that's been around that long, has a build process so catastrophically complex and a testing process so catastrophically mm. complex. They did publish the source to it a couple of times. Yes. Not, for, not for anybody. But that yeah. was because yeah. of, of the DOG consent decree. Yeah. They were yeah. required yeah. to show and APIs. And, and if you mm. asked for it, you, you could, could get you could. the yeah. source code. Yeah. I, I didn't bite that. I just didn't want it. The well, and that to me is source open, not open but, source. But, you know, but think about it. I mean, if you if you do that and you agree to it, do you are you... Are you opening yourself up for liability now? I mean, if you're... Yeah, I think you can't then go and do something like work on the Linux kernel but yeah, right. at that point. Um, and I would say they were doing it to avoid liability because the argument mm. was that there were things... For them, yeah. Yes. But I mean, for you, if you download the Windows source and start messing with it, something happens. Oh, there's a version of Windows out in the wild that does some evil things. Let's find out who has the source. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, don't know. know. It's interesting. It's interesting. I mean, you know, w w w would it be good for them to so take on that challenge and solve those problems such mm. that essentially yeah, could genuinely build Windows? Maybe, maybe that would push them in a better technical direction because they'd have to solve. I that would challenge. argue it's a re it's easier to rewrite. I mean, in the end, if you look at yeah. that's what happened to C sharp. But if you think about it, the whole yeah. reason that people want the Windows source is so that they understand the system better, mm -hmm. for right. so that they know what's going on. And that's what the source open move did. It's like yeah. what you're carrying. And the argument back in the day, again, I've been doing the history mm. lately, was. Mm. 
uh, things like real player, right? Like audio players, the Windows player always work better than anybody else's. Microsoft's doing some trickery there. Then when they yeah. actually show the APIs, like mm -hmm. here's how you call into Windows for it. This mm -hmm. is what's inside the API. They're like, oh, yeah. we've just been calling it wrong. Mm -hmm. right. Do it differently, yeah. right? Like that's the sort of thing that happens when you reveal the underlying code and can show it to you, even if it's not in a compilable form. Well, and the really positive thing that's happened with the whole open sourcing around CLR, which I'm really pleased with Microsoft and the guys who, you know, work really hard for basically open sourcing the CLR was you then got someone like Ben Adams come along and mm -hmm. say, I can make this so much faster. The thing, I can find all these things that are wrong already and some else starts from making PR yes. to improve the performance. And that is a real, if you like, hugely beneficial payback thing. then to Microsoft for how you got it's a onto great, that work. It's also a great compliment, you know, Miguel Diacasa, the guy who has, you know, for the past 10 plus years built his own version of .NET. Right. When, they, when they finally going to open source the .NET libraries, He's like, what are you going to look at first? His garbage collection. Because mm. he could, ne he's like, I could never build a garbage collection as fast and robust as what those mm. guys were doing. And yeah. I want to know. Yeah. I want to see mm. it. And then when he saw it, he says, I've seen it. I don't know how the hell I did it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you talk about the most optimized code that exists within the .NET framework. It's that bloody garbage mm. collector. Mm. And, uh, and that's to me is really interesting. It's like, when you actually see the source and look at these things, you realize, wow really smart people built right. this stuff and worked really hard to make it as good as it could be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so to get back to the community we were discussing. Yeah, yeah. cultural yeah. problems, right? Right, I mean, exactly. You know, and you see this is, a, it's still a problem. I mean, .NET among younger developers and people who are new mm. to it are, are more resistant to it because there's so many people who have such a history and they almost have to know a lot of this history and know a yeah. lot of these things that so just people aren't talking about anymore because right. it's old stuff. Right. And one of, my garbage one of my concerns is a little bit as a community is that we, we, we've, we've forgotten to attract new people in at the beginning of Without the process. Yeah. And, you know, um, Dylan Beattie, you guys may have talked to uh, um, on the show. I don't know. Yes. Um, have we done a show with Dylan I yet? I don't know if I we, have, we have. Actually. We will. But we haven't yet. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, he and I, so he and I run a user group in London. And, you know, we, we, we suddenly woke up one day and said, well, hang on a minute. When was the last time we ran talks for people who are new Newbies, to the platform? Yeah. Yeah. Right? When was the last time we supported you and your efforts if you'd come in to join? Because mm. right now, you, if you feel like you could walk into .NET and there are a lot of smart people talking about things, but they're not talking about the entry-level stuff that right. you need help with to get right. through in your first two years. Yeah. And... You know, the, the analogy I, I, I use is it's, it, it, you know, all languages are essentially leaky buckets, right? You can't plug the holes. There are people sure. leaving the mm -hmm. whole time. Yeah. And C Sharp is a big bucket. You know, mm -hmm. so it's Java, right? But unless, you, unless you're filling it at the top, it eventually you will run dry. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and, it, and it is self-reinforcing. Once you have a gap in the feed system for new people coming in, then the new people that do eventually show up are far enough away from the next people that it's that much harder yeah. for them and you're going to lose more right. and it gets worse and worse and worse. And I think we're in a bad state right now for right. that. We do have some opportunities here though. So I think there are things we can, we can be positive about. You know, uh, young people, uh, I say young people, we're all old around the table. I feel yeah, terrible yeah. now. All these old men with their old gray men beards. Sitting around, and sitting around the table. <laughs> well, we've certainly <laughs> been doing it a unity, long time. The Unity engine, right? Yeah. 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 And, and get via game, this means, means people are exposed to C Sharp. Mm -hmm. Microsoft's done a quite good job of actually getting people in education involved in it. My godson came to, you know, from work experience for me at work, and he'd done C Sharp at school, right? Awesome. Uh, and 
So, th- so there's an opportunity. What we just need to do is give them a, you know, a way in and right. to not to feel, A, that we are not interested in helping them and B, to not feel that they, you know, there is this establishment of the, the right. usual figures. Uh, you'll who, never be able to get there. Right. And I've got to say, at a conference like NDC, I am super happy to see a younger generation of speakers. And I put Dylan in that boat, too, because he's only been speaking for a little while he now. He has, yeah, uh, yeah. But Heather Downing's yeah, here. Yeah. and like, uh, 20-somethings. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we have to feel Thank that, goodness. that they're, they're, they're coming well. through. Right, yeah. 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 And we have, to make it, we have to make it come through. And, you know, and then there's the diversity issue, right, which we're all painfully aware yeah, of. Sure. Painfully aware. Yeah. And... You know, I, I did, I, one of the things I said is that there's actually a bit of an opportunity here for us in a way in that, um, you know, we're, most of us are developers are aware that some people probably cast a little bit of, you know, view, view us with a little bit negatively. They go, oh, sure. you know, I don't know if Those guys. there's a famous blog, isn't there, by some startup CTO mm-hmm. saying, I'd never hire a developer. Right. It's, a, it's a bad thing on your CV. Right, and I think actually, you know, in the way that you should embrace all these things, I think we should embrace it and say, you know what, actually, the .NET community should be embraced not being an elitist group, right, yeah. and actually being broad. And one of the things I really admire about the Python community is their commitment to embracing everyone doing Python, including hobbyists sure. who are working at home, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, as a community, we should say, well, right, that, that should be a badge of honor for us. We are going to embrace everybody. We mm-hmm. are going to pull everyone into our into our space. We are going to say we welcome all developers. Right. Uh, it, Regardless of they're just doing it as a hobby, they're writing some stuff in Unity, we should welcome them all and we should purge this any kind of elitism mm-hmm. or notion of these are the, the made men, etc. from our community. Right? Yeah. And people like me should have to fight for our place. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Well this old thing of uh, you know, if you're if you've been building ASP.NET apps for the past 10 years, do you have 10 years experience or one year experience repeated 10 times? Well, all right, like yeah. are, are you actually evolving as a developer as well? Are you mm-hmm. putting on new skills, new yeah. practices, new approaches? Maybe you're still making the same kind of product, but you are adapting to the better tooling and the better mm-hmm. methodologies that are available so that you, you are evolving. It, it concerns me that we run into folks that are they're doing the same thing they've been doing since 2005. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it works for them. It does. It's and, and, they and, and, they're, and their employer's happy. Yeah. Right? right. You know, this, and I hear, you hear all the time developers concerned that they treat me like a cog. I just do the same thing every time. It's like, well, mm. it seems like you're treating yourself as a cog too by doing mm. the same things right. each time. All right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's one of the quotes I gave in my talk is from uh, an expert prime minister called Harold Wilson. And it's, and it's the, he says, the, uh, to paraphrase it, the only place that accepts lack of change is the cemetery. Right. <laughs> ah, nice, <laughs> nice, and and that is true, yeah. right? And but uh, you know, I think everyone appreciates change is uncomfortable, and and, and no one's um, uh, suggesting it's not. Mm-hmm. And I, but I think there's another problem, which is an industry wide problem, which is there's too much. Um, the industry puts too much pressure on, you know, developers to essentially handle the responsibility of change in their own time, right. not um, as part of work. And you know. Um, my uh, partner used to be a, a lawyer. She now, she bakes cakes for a living now, but uh-huh. um, she hated the law. But the, 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 the thing is, <laughs> now she puts files. Yeah, in Yeah, but, right? but lawyers expect their employer, and they are required to keep their license to practice. Sure. They get a certain number of hours every every year learning about changes to the law, learning about changes of what they do. Absolutely. And their employers have to have to basically let them do Give that them in order time to continue for practice. Yes. And yeah. I, I think the danger as an industry is we. The reason we find quite often people in some of these environments are so resistant to change is, well, when am I going to learn all this stuff, right? right. I've got two kids uh, at home. I don't want to 
so I think the industry has to accept that in order to get the best out of its developers, it has to give them the opportunity to This has to, to be change. built into the process. Right. And I mean, certainly we're in a place right now where most people that are here, we're, their employer paid for them to be here. Right. And maybe you look at it as a bonus, maybe you look at it as part of your training budget. I don't mm -hmm. know how that gets manifest. Mm -hmm. But I think it's one of our challenges, while we're still not a profession, while we still don't have a regulating board that actually defines us mm. as professional software engineers, we don't have those things. We have to sort of make it come true. Mm. I don't yeah. know what it's going to take for us to actually be a profession. Like well, we, you know, but we need it. We can do things ourselves, like learn functional programming, if sure. that's not part of our daily regimen. You know, mm. That helps us become better mm -hmm. .NET programmers. There's a rule that I actually give to the people at work, and it's kind of a variation of the 80-20 rule, right? And it says, you know, 80% of your skills investment probably should be around what you're doing today, all yeah. right? That's, that's what's paying the mortgage, right? Yeah, and you should get better at it. Right, and the, tw I mean, the 20% that should actually be on what you're doing tomorrow, and you can divide that. Mm. But spend about 15% of that time on what you think is likely that you're going to need to know tomorrow, right? right. So if you're a .NET developer, probably you should be thinking about .NET Core, Right, tomorrow. Because it's probably you're going to need to know that tomorrow. Sure, sure, And yeah. that means you're going to extend to the world of understanding things like Docker, right? Right. Um, probably focusing on web API, that kind of et cetera. Things that maybe you're not in your comfort zone right now. Yep. Maybe learning a bit about things like what microservices architecture come from, where all those things are. And then 5%, they're saying, should be more of a bet, right? It's a little more, more moonshotty. Yeah, more this will pay there. off big if it happens, but maybe nothing will come from this 5% right. that I spend. So maybe that's the point where you say, I'm going to go and learn how to program functionally, right? Sure. Yeah. When or, I think about coming to an event like this, go to 20 sessions, yeah. and 15 of them are going to be related to the stuff you're currently doing, and yeah. three of them are going to be what you're probably going to do next, yeah. and one or two of them is out there a bit. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, I like yeah. that model a lot. Yeah. What are the other challenges to making this renaissance happen besides technology and culture? Are we dependent on uh, Microsoft to continue to do a good job of uh, mm. doing what they're doing? Is there a possibility that they will change gears again? I think, in the that, wrong we, direction? You know, I think that any open source um, direction around uh, .NET really has to include the community uh, building. Uh, things that are needed as part of the ecosystem and not just relying on Microsoft. And I think the danger is that Microsoft end up feeling responsible to do all these things right. if the community doesn't. Yeah. If we have an open source ecosystem, it's going to mean we need to basically go out there and build things. And, you know, there are, there are if you talk about the, this kind of cloud native model, there are already areas where you can see, well, there are products out there, but maybe we need something in our community. So a classic example would be, um, as soon as you're not running on Windows anymore, you're not necessarily going to be running in a Windows service using right. something like Top Shelf. Like we all use enough Top Shelf. It's made our lives very easy. But Windows services don't exist on my Linux box, right? right. So or my, if my container's running something like Linux, that's not going to work for me. So maybe I decide to use uh, Supervised, right? So mm -hmm. basically, which is a nice Python library, helps basically kind of supervise a worker pan, helps basically keep me, keep me up. But maybe I'd want to actually understand the code and what's happening a bit more. Or maybe I'd want to actually have one of those written in some, by somebody basically in a .NET language, right? Mm -hmm. okay. So there are some opportunities there for people to work on projects that form part of our infrastructure. Um, another one I, I have on my list of things people should probably tackle is something like um, a configuration server. So... You know, a lot of people today uh, have a build process where essentially the build process templates, config files for given environments and hard codes in the strings and values and keys that you need in those environments. Yeah. 
doesn't scale very well, and you get a very complex build process for something that doesn't really need to be. You'd be better off with a configuration server of some sort, which keeps the secrets you talk to, and it's very dynamic at runtime, right? Yeah. And there are things like, you know, we can do service discovery with useful tools like console, which is written in Go. There's things like Vault, which contains some secrets. And there's things like, you know, Cloud Foundry has a Java configuration server. But again, it's a space where I think within the ISS community in .NET, it'd be useful to have uh, some kind of configuration server written. Isn't there anything that exists like that already? Seems I to me know. I saw something. Maybe it wasn't. It might be, and, and that'd be really great if someone basically tells us what that is. Yeah. Um, and that's not, but that is a, you speak to actually another problem, which is you know how do we communicate with people about where the, what, what tools to use in the open source ecosystem? Right. Get that conversation going sure. so people understand. I have a, I have this need. Is other projects live and out there? We, we, we you know, .NET Foundation can help, but we need some way effectively of, under, of, of communicating about the CSS ecosystem. Right. right. Uh, you know, and I, that can be a real challenge for people. I mean, I work on an open source library called Brighter, which helps you do uh, task use uh, and a kind of CQRS patterns, and it can be used for microservices as well. But one of our challenges is how do I get that information to people outside? Yeah, all right. So, um, you know, most people use Stack Overflow as the sort of the technical Google, right? You know, mm. and it's a good way to uh, looking at Stack Overflow trends is also a good way to, to tell what people are mostly asking about and being concerned about. But, but I agree, there, there needs to be more of those places out there where we can see what, uh, what people are talking about. Yeah, almost just even a... a, a uh, somewhere saying, you know, here's a, here's a stack and you can build stuff with this stack. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I talked to, uh, I talked to today about the fact that there's a thing called Drop Wizard in Java, which essentially is tooling that lets you help new microservice projects. And it would be, you know, very interesting for someone to build a CLI project that essentially says, you're spinning up a new microservice, here are your options, you know, you need, you need something to do this, right? You pick from the list of libraries we, that we, we've got templates for, et cetera. And you spin up your, you know, your template, your scaffolding for your, your bare service. Right. But it plugs into, templates that are given providers right. So right, that essentially yeah. we can then make it very easy for somebody to say, oh, I'm going to pick this, 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 and this, put them all together and produce a template that actually, actually works to do that. I actually have been working on something like that. And, and you okay. know, it's sort of like a code generator on steroids, if you think of it that way. Yeah. That you just say, you know, this is what I want to use for my store. These are my service technologies. Right. Pick your stack. And like you say, have the templates do most of the work just to get you up and running. Right. The other problem with that approach though, is you're, you end up with a lot of stuff that you didn't write and don't own and maybe don't understand. And you know, that in, provides this psychological friction, right, if you yeah. will, to, to understanding it and, and using it correctly. I, I don't know about you, but every time I, I get an error in some substrate library while I'm writing code, it's hard for me to remember, oh, that error isn't for me. That, that's a bug that somebody yeah. else has to deal with because it's my, in my nature to want to understand it. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, and it's always been a, a, a tricky one that, um, you know, who do you go to for support? Uh, and obviously, you know, the best OSS libraries are ones that do have active Slack or Gitter channels that help you actually do support. Yeah. And that, that is, you know, when you're choosing an OSS library, Understanding whether there's a community around it, you'll be able to ask questions of is a is a, is a is a valuable part of the process of understanding whether that library is worth using. Of course, it is chicken and egg for the guys writing the library, right? Yeah, I'm not going to use your library because it's got no community around it. Right, but it's never going to get a community around it unless someone starts using it, right? Right, um, yeah. you get into that nasty rut, 
And I, yeah. and I flatly admit to whenever I look at an open source library, first thing you look at is when was the last commit? How yeah. many contributors are there? Like, it's my gauge of the health of a library. Right. All it yeah. really takes is one or two people to shepherd uh, a project, though, and, and continue to yeah. work on it to get everybody excited about it. Really, yeah. they just want to know that it's being worked on. Yeah, somebody loves it, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. And it's starting with the principal, you know, the dictator for life. If they haven't seen a check-in from that person in a year, mm. that should make you nervous unless mm. you see clearly there's a set of disciples that have taken it on because that mm. person had to go on about their business one way or the other. Mm. Talking about traditional open source projects here. Right, right yeah, no, I think that's very, very true. Yeah, I think you need to feel this engagement. I mean, I think, you know, we, uh, we have a Gitter channel, right? And I think you can probably tell you know, the health of a project by, if I, if I post in there, does anyone reply and how right. long does it take to reply, right? Yeah, and, and a lot of Gitter channels I've ever dropped into, it's seconds. Like, mm. what I like is I drop in to gauge health and mm. see a question from someone else come up and get immediately answered. Yeah. And, and, you, and also get a sense of that culture, right? Because mm. how many times is the answer, go read the docs, Nimno. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, that's been answered. But. So, Ian, what's on your radar? What we, what's next for you, man? Um, what are we doing? Uh, so for um, on Brighter, we're going to do some integration with just a, just a Python version. Uh, it integrates so that you can send messages between the C-sharp version and the Python version. I think particularly it, useful. You mentioned it, but what is, just tell us briefly what Brighter is again. So Brighter essentially is a library for... There's two purposes. Essentially, it, it deals with... Uh, the command side of CQRS and lets yeah. you basically push a command to a handler, but we let you put that handler on the far side of the message queue okay. so that you can uh, you can either run in process or you can run asynchronously using the message queue. All right. And that's, that's called a task queue approach. And as such, also you can actually use it to communicate between two microservices. We have a sister project called Darker, which mm -hmm. has the ah, query side, nice. basically, uh, <laughs> right CQRS. Darker. But yeah, we're going to do a Python. I'm thinking we're going to a Python version called Brightside because it's Python, so you have to look on the bright side of life. Ah, nice. That is uh, great. I had to get that gag in somewhere. <laughs> and the idea really there is to let you, say, have a C-sharp uh, API that basically decides it's going to call Python because it wants to do some data science or whatever on the back end and send it a message, or vice versa. You could, you could, you could do it either way around. And so get a little bit of that. Um, you know, in the microservices world, um, one, of the, one of the benefits perceived in microservices is that you can write the different services in different languages. And some languages have some nice niche areas where it may make sense to use that language over a more general purpose one, right? right? right. Um, so we're looking at that. Um, yeah, overall, I think the thing that's really exciting me and I've not done enough with really is looking more at serverless. Yeah. Um, that's the one area I really feel that I've not done, put enough of my time into really um, seeing what I can do with it. So that's next for me already. Excellent. Well, uh, thanks a lot, man. It's been, it's always great to talk to you. Just hey, to, even we have if, fun. Yeah, we're just talking. And uh, thanks again, Ian, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, 
recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 